right. Hello, everybody. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Tom Moore, founder and CEO of CEO Quest, a Silicon Valley headquartered forum for CEOs of venture-backed tech companies. Tom is the author of five books about startups, including In the Loop, which is centered on building the digital enterprise. Today, we're excited to talk with Tom about fit systems for various stages of enterprise and the new leadership paradigm that makes it all happen. In other words, how to build and scale startups. But before we get into that, Tom, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Oleg. It's a pleasure to be here. We're excited to have you, and I'd love to little. I'd love to learn a little bit more about you. How did you get interested in enterprise systems and leadership in the first place? Yeah, thank you. I I had been a Fortune 500 executive, so I was president of Knight Ritter Digital on the boards of companies like Cars.com and CareerBuilder, and running the digital enterprises for the the second largest newspaper oriented media company in the U.S. and in 2005, Knight Ritter was sold and broken up, and I started a startup and went on the journey of company building over the course of six years, and I found that all the things I thought I knew about leading and running companies were sort of challenged and put to the test. And coming out of that experience with uh, the, the company, uh, which, which is now called Digital Airstrike, I got it funded, got it to $20 million in revenue, cash flow positive, but I... Uh, I, I realized there was so much that I hadn't known. And when I decided to dive into what I do now at CEO Quest, uh, which is, by the way, to serve, uh, you know, we, I provide coaching to technology company CEOs. I made a commitment to myself that I was not just going to be one of these coaches that leaned on my personal experiences only but rather that I would need to go to school on, on company building itself. And so I dedicated myself to that eight years ago in starting CEO Quest. I have now written, as you said, five books, uh, Scaling the Revenue Engine, People Design, In the Loop, which is the book we're talking about today, Funding and Exits. And I just literally two days ago finished the 23rd chapter of my fifth and final book in the company building series, which is called The Four-Way Fit. So it's been really cool because the act of writing has forced me to think in a disciplined way about company building. And the act of coaching has provided this virtuous cycle where my coaching helps my writing and my writing helps my coaching. We're excited to have you here. I got to glance at some of the work you've put out from uh, In The Loop. So yeah, real excited to talk about that. When did you first come up with this idea of a fit system? And can you talk about what that means? Yeah. Yeah. So my very first book that I wrote was called Scaling the Revenue Engine. And, and one of the insights that I had that is core to that book is something that emerged out of my own experience, that the whole notion of thinking about a revenue engine is being made up of you know, a marketing function that then moves to a sales function that moves to a customer success function and, 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 and so forth is staggeringly incomplete and really not even the right way to think about it. A revenue engine is a living system. It is composed of people, workflows, technology, and money flows. And this system has to be thought of holistically in order to be optimized in order to be made more mature. And that insight in my first book is something I soon began to realize applied to everything. In fact, the innovations that, that have been occurring over the last 10, 15 years in how to build digital technology, the insights around that, around domain-driven design, reactive microservices architecture, agile methods for development, cross-functional teams, two pizza teams for <laughs> building out things, right? Like all those pieces of the puzzle have the same, the same drivers of that theory around how to build technology apply to the human side of organizations as well. Domain-driven organization design, not just system design, 
not you know, the, the notion of creating small microservices that occurs in the technology side also applies inside companies. And so what I began to realize is that a company is a system made up of subsystems living in an ecosystem. And leaders have to understand that connectivity and the fundamental dynamics that exist inside systems in order to effectively lead them. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I want to talk about this new paradigm of leadership and, and part of this section here involves talking about the structural functional leadership paradigm. That's something I wasn't familiar with until I started looking at this uh, interview we're doing. Can you talk about the structural functional paradigm as a, as a framework? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in order to understand the framework that's appropriate for the, you know, point in time stage of evolution that we're in today, we have to understand historically where we've come from, right? And in leadership, you know, you sort of had, you know, a long, long time ago, right? You had this mass, mass production era in which, you know, it was all about huge, heavy machinery, the, the top 42% of all the manufacturing assets in the United States were controlled by 100 corporations. This was the Rockefellers, oil, big oil, all these major things, right? And in that era, turn of the century timeframe, right, you had this monopoly paradigm where people were seeking to establish these massive monopolies and gain control over a very stabilized environment where it was all about seeing workers as widgets and optimizing the process, 100% about optimizing the process. You then moved into that thing around World War II, right, where you had to mobilize a war effort. And suddenly it was all about production, getting enough stuff produced to get things out. People were coming back after the war with a military background. And so you had this very top-down thing. But then you had the rise of unions and you had to deal with that. And so it was all about efficiency. That was the paradigm. It became bureaucratic, though. Right. There was a lot of bureaucratic overhang because of things like the labor movement and so forth. Right. Well, that began to cause quality to falter. So during that time, there was a rise in the 80s of a focus on quality. You had Honda and Toyota coming in, stealing market share and all these U.S. businesses getting caught flat footed. So the quality movement needed a way of stabilizing and organizing around quality. And so we began to see this emergence of the structural functional leadership paradigm where getting sort of clarity of role, clarity of structure, clean breakdowns of the movement of functions from one step to the next. And so it was about stability, predictability, quality, efficiency, and optimizing the supply side inside the enterprise. And it was all good, right, for that stage. But what happened was change. And that's what led us to the next stage. The rate of change. Well, well, thank you for breaking that down. I mean, I ask about the structural functional paradigm because, you know, when I read it or when I Googled it, what I found was it's a framework for understanding organizations or society, I guess is where it came from, that tells us to sort of look at the parts and how they work together. And it kind of sounds, sounds very similar to this idea of organizations as a system with subsystems that, that make it up. The, the difference is that the, the entire focus of the structural functional paradigm was on stability and, and constantly leading towards stability with a sort of an inward focus, right? There's an inward focus around uh, the creation of stability and the stable interaction of functions across a known process, right? And the, 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 the problem is that today we live in a world that in, in which the rate of change has exploded. And so it, it is not possible to have an enterprise that is internally constantly focusing on its own stability, right? In fact, in some ways, the preoccupation with stability can run the risk of avoiding disruptive effects that are occurring in the marketplace that, that the, a smart, a fit systems enterprise needs to respond to. 
Right. And I didn't mention it at the top, but you have mentioned already, you know, there's this change. The eras have changed. And now we are kind of in this digital era where change is really fast, change is accelerating. And this affects not just the enterprise business leaderships and the, and the business itself. Not only is it a part of the products, but it's a part of the, the, the internal workings of the organizations. So talking about how these organizations can be better led, can you talk about what the loop paradigm is and you know, what are the attributes that, that make up this uh, paradigm? Yeah. So when we see the enterprise as a system, we begin to recognize its context, right? So there's the whole notion of nested dolls, right? So we have an ecosystem. We have the enterprise, which is a, a large system. And then inside the system, we have subsystems like the revenue engine, product, product development, the human resources system, the accounting system. There's, there's these various systems that exist. And inside those, there are domains. Now, in order for the system to be as effective as it can be, it needs to be responsive to change that's occurring around it. So I mentioned that the enterprise lives inside of an ecosystem. If the pace of change in the ecosystem has quickened, which of course we know it has, right? Both in terms of competitive factors and in terms of customer needs, right? That are both evolving at a rate of change way greater than previous generations of enterprises had to deal with. The enterprise has to be built to survive in the Darwinian sense inside the ecosystem. The, the system called the enterprise has to be able to survive and thrive. Well, that requires, that requires the capacity to sense what is going on at all times, both in the ecosystem, outside in, and inside the enterprise system. You know, leaders need to be in touch. So the notion is that we need, and furthermore, these days, digital leverage is fundamental. So it, there's no company in the world that can of, of any scale, of any significant scale, that can avoid being a technology company anymore. At least technology enabled in a significant way, but increasingly a technology company that they have to begin to make that shift because digital leverage is just so fundamental. If you don't have it and your competitor does, they're going to win. Can you can you expand on what digital leverage is? Is it just getting digitization into your products or, or can you help me understand that? Right. So let's think of any service that we're delivering. Okay. Some, some value to a customer, right? That value may, for many legacy companies, be expressed in part or even primarily through human activity, right? I may have shipments I receive all the time from people dropping things off. I may have service provided to me that is, is human in nature in some dimension or another. And every place where service delivery is human, there is going to be variation in the delivery of that capability. And it will vary in terms of quality, and it will vary in terms of consistency and so forth. So digital leverage leans into those types of issues. And furthermore, it's expensive because with humans providing value in the product itself, it, 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 it is expensive. So digital leverage obviously begins to deal with those. And furthermore, inside the back end of the business, there's a continuous array of activities at the intersection of people, workflows, technology, and money flows where if you can increase the ratio of technology delivering a necessary step in a process, right, or a workflow versus people delivering that step, you have increased both quality and, and cost efficiency, assuming that the process is stable, that, that it's, it's consistently the same every time, you know. So, so that, that, that's what I mean by digital leverage. It's increasing the, the ratio of, of digital solutions inside the enterprise, both from the standpoint of the customer and from the standpoint of internal processes. 
Okay. So I'm going to try to repeat that back. Best enterprises have best-in-class digital leverage uh, in their products. That drives new customer value. It distances companies from their competitors. And you know, it also should improve the internal processes through things like automation. So companies have scaled in part by driving digital leverage into their internal processes. That makes them you know, better, more efficient, more resilient. Can you talk next about just how exactly does a fit enterprise or fit systems enterprise, how does it look like in, in practice? Yeah, it's an excellent question. So if we conceive of the business as a set of systems instead of as a set of functions, functions exist. So let's be clear. Obviously, marketing exists, sales exists, sales development exists, customer success exists, design, product management, engineering All these functions clearly exist. They're important. And they need strong functional leaders that can help these people deliver effective performance within the function that they exist inside of, right? Of course. However, that doesn't mean you need to design your organization as functional silos, right? In fact, I would argue that's not the right way to do it. As we've learned from the world of technology, where Domain-driven design and microservices architecture are now known to be the most effective way to to build resilient, responsive, scalable, self-healing type of technology, right? Well, the same principles apply here. So the first thing I would refer to is organization design. What you see in the Fit Systems Enterprise is domain-driven organization design. And what I mean by that is you look at the systemic interactions inside the enterprise between people, workflows, technology, and money flows, and you're going to naturally see the big operating systems. And and when I use the word operating system, I use it in the socio-technical sense of the word, okay? I mean both the people and the technology, right? So revenue engine, classic example of a a socio-technical subsystem inside the enterprise accounting engine, right? Human resource engine. These are, these are natural ways to, that are fairly obvious, okay? But inside of those are domains. And when you look at the natural interactions between the flow of work, if you can draw boundaries that create a natural constellation, whether that be a functional, unifunctional constellation of activity, or whether it be cross-functional, you, you concentrate more on the natural seams in the, in, in, the, in the nature of work. So let me give an example. Okay. When a lead comes into a B2B SaaS business, right, there's an incoming lead that occurred as a result of marketing activity. There's some point in time in the middle where you have a sales development rep that's going to be receiving that lead, right? And then translating that lead into an appointment, which is going to connect to an account executive. Well, we've now touched three functions. There's a marketing person who was responsible for delivering a certain quality of lead. There was a sales development rep who was responsible for elevating the likelihood of conversion of that lead to the point where the prospect is willing to receive an appointment. And there's an account executive willing to receive that appointment and do the demo and and initiate the sale process. Okay. Three different functions. So it's natural, uh, an appropriate thing to do would be to look at those three roles and figure out ways that those people can work quite closely together. Because when they don't work closely together, the marketing guy says, I sent you 500 leads last month. And the sales development guy says, and they were all crap because you didn't meet the definition of what a lead should be. Okay, and the account executive says, and furthermore, SDR, you're not sending me anything worth converting because they're not even able to afford what we charge. Okay, or whatever. So by by getting these folks into a common team structure in some way or another, right, we do that. Now, this is happening in product and engineering where a typical two pizza development team will have on it what a designer, a product manager a front-end engineer or, or three, a back-end engineer or three. So we have this natural cross-functional constellation 
around a known part of the product that that team is responsible for developing, right? That type of domain-driven organization design is relevant in product and engineering. It's also relevant elsewhere in the organization. And when you go that way, you end up with a more modular organization, less risky of creating functional silos and monolithic situations where you always have to go to the very top of the organization to resolve any conflict between functions. That doesn't happen if you've got yourself in a modular organizational structure, which I call domain-driven design. And I think from what, I, from what I've read, the person in charge of these domain-driven designs are, are going to be the CEOs, right? They're going to be the leaders uh, at, the, at the company. Uh, and you call, them, you call them loop leaders. So, so yeah, can you talk about who these loop leaders are and, and maybe give us some examples of uh, you know, loop leaders you, you look at? Or... Yeah. So I think of, a, a, of an in-the-loop leader as being uh, ethically grounded, digitally literate systems thinkers. Okay. So now let's go through each of those three. So ethically grounded, uh, it is, it is fundamental that, you know, we're dealing with number one, any legitimate enterprise should be a force for good, right? It should be a force for good in the world. And therefore you need leaders who are proactively working to ensure that what it does is a force for good. You know, uh, uh, my last couple of chapters, I, I've written about Airbnb uh, of my, not, not of, of in the loop, but of my most recent book, uh, Before We Fit. I've written about the, the last two chapters were on Airbnb and on Zoom. And in both cases, there were multiple points along the journey where significant ethical issues emerged that required leaders to effectively respond. So in the case of Airbnb, you had situations where rogue actors were pretending to host really fancy spaces, but when the guests got there, they found that it wasn't even close to what was represented. You've had hosts that have also had issues, but, uh, and, and then, so Airbnb needed to have an appropriate and high integrity response to that. When COVID hit, okay, all of a sudden, all the bookings in the world got canceled suddenly. Now, Airbnb only takes, what, 10, 15% of the transaction, right? Most of that money that was all booked and in most cases already paid for was, was actually in the hands of, of, of hosts, right? All around the world that are hosting spaces. Well, Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, made, made the bold decision to allow automatic refunds to anybody in the entire world, okay? Now, that put his guests at great peril, but it was the right thing to do. He had to raise a billion dollars of funding to help support that move. He had, before he won IPO, he had to raise a billion dollars of funding to help support. That's an ethically grounded leader, right? So, and then digitally literate, we've talked about systems thinkers. So, I believe there are four types of thinking competencies that leaders need to have, and the, the ratio of them varies as you scale, okay? The four are design thinking, which is outside-in, customer-oriented, user experience, right? Lean thinking, which is about continuous optimization, A-B testing, agile delivery. Strategic thinking, which is about understanding the seven pathways to sustainable competitive advantage and advancing your way along those pathways. And finally, systems thinking, right? Which is what we're talking about here. At the larger a company goes on the 11 stages of company building, as you move from stage to stage, the ratio dedicated to systems thinking continuously arises in relationship to those other three because the, the system becomes more complex. It starts off as a one cell organism and eventually it's a complex animal. It's very complex. You have a lot, a lot of things going on. So systems thinking becomes absolutely critical at scale. It's important early on, but the other things, you know, design thinking and lean thinking are really critical before you get to your value breakthrough. Competitive, gaining competitive advantage, which is about strategic thinking, 
rises, obviously, during that middle phase, but persistent from about the middle phase all the way through to hot public company, systems thinking is critical because you got to manage this complex beast that you sit atop. All right. Well, thank you for mentioning those stages. I'd like to walk through some of them together and, and do some systems thinking of our own. <laughs> so the systems, the systems of an enterprise are not all equally relevant at each stage. So I want to talk a little about a little bit about these stages. Let's dive into how system priorities can evolve as a company goes through the different stages. And, and we'll start at the ideation stage. What systems should we prioritize when a startup is merely you know, a thesis at the ideation stage? Yeah, and I'm going to actually just take the fancy words uh, out of this part of it and, and go to the heart of it, okay? In, and what I mean is my fancy words of, around you know, systems thinking and, and all these buzzwords. I'm going to get to the heart of it. In the immerse and ideate stage, probably the most important advice I would give to somebody at that stage is stay there longer than you might think. Immerse, immerse deeply in the experience of your customers, in their issues, live in their world. In my most recent book that I've written, I I sort of took issue a little bit with Steve Blank and, and Eric Reese and the lean startup concept, which uses a standard called get out of the office, okay, for these early stages of company building. In my view, that is woefully insufficient. What I see time and time again is people who, that, with, with successful companies that build global fit systems enterprises, like Zoom, like Airbnb, like Airtable, like Canva, like some of the other ones I've written about, Netflix, so forth. What you see is people that deeply immerse in their customer's world until they deeply understand the gaping problems and screaming needs these people are encountering. And only then do they begin to move you know, to those later stages. So the system that, that exists at that stage is totally about outside-in feedback loops. Okay, that's kind of surprising for me, but definitely interesting. How about when you've kind of grown out of the ideation stage? What starts happening with systems product becomes uh, minimally viable? Yeah, so so there's there are four stages that, that lead up to the critical one, which is minimum viable product. And and I call th- those four stages. I I put a I call it a phase called the you know, the discovery of a value breakthrough phase. Right. So that that encompasses those first four stages. So the company is going to stay small and it should stay small until you have accomplished a value breakthrough. And what this essentially is about is about recognizing that being generative, being cap- being an entity that creates real value for real customers in a real market is always the first priority in company building. And in that those first four stages, it is the only priority. It is really the only priority is to become, is to prove that you are a force of generative goodness, that you are pushing value into the marketplace, into the hands of your customers, right? And only once you have proof through customer purchase and retention behavior that, that you are, are, that you have indeed created something, some nascent thing that is giving enough value to your early stage visionary customers that they are continuing to keep on with you, pay you, and demand many things from you as to what they don't yet have that they feel they need, but they're still getting value out of something, right? Okay, now we are able to begin the journey, the second phase journey, which composes the final seven stages of company building, where you are actually building up your value. And now the generative force of your goal as a system to be generative, right? Now you begin to see the rise of the second force that also has to begin to be true, which is that you're adaptive. And I'm going to leap way ahead to imagine a company with 5,000 employees, okay? What we want to make sure as an adaptive enterprise is change is occurring in the, in the ecosystem and you want to have people on the front lines capable of sensing the change and within their domain, 
They have all the data they need to sense it, to figure out what it means, to develop a plan, and to act on it without having to go all the way up to the top of this 5,000-person enterprise or, or whatever, right? Because that, that ability to be agile, modular, self-organized at the edges of the organization is what creates this adaptive enterprise, right? So you're generative first, right? You got to deliver value, and then you have to be adaptive. And adaptive is about resiliency, which is the feedback loops telling you when there's a problem. And it's also about being self-organized, right? Where you have enough power inside the little modules that the module doesn't have to wait on the bureaucracy to tell them whether they can do something. They can act on their own to, to respond to the immediate threat or the immediate opportunity, right? So that's resilient, scalable, and efficient in that order. And that's the adaptive side of the, so it's generative and adaptive. And, and as you scale, what changes is the ratio. So it's 100% generative early on. And as you move along, you begin to get generative stays important, but now we begin to add this adaptive aspect, which we have to build into our structures, into our culture, into the way technology and people and workflows interact with each other in the way that money flows, right? Those things begin to become important. This is just kind of a follow-up. So I'm trying to understand these terms of generative and adaptive, and I think I understand you know, when you're at the very early stages, you have to sh show some sort of uh, proof of concept, right? You have to generate interest. And at some point, you your organization becomes adaptive. And how early does it do that? Because you kind of, you jumped on me, right? We went from, from an idea to a 5,000 person startup uh, really quick. So how does this idea of like adaptivity, how early is it introduced? Is it it really begins to matter the minute you come out of minimum viable product, right? So, so the stage is right after that. So minimum viable product. Now we've got a handful of customers that are consistently getting just enough value to not quit, okay? Right? Like that's sort of where we are at that point. There's just enough value and they're frustrated about a lot of things, but they, they're getting some value and they're paying you money and they're willing to stay, okay? So... Now what we got to do is move to repeatability where we can prove that we can find other customers and sell them because the first few might have been just friends and family, you know? And so you move on to the, the need to prove you can sell. And then there's minimum viable traction where we're beginning to actually get good at, at acquiring new customers. And during that time, also, obviously, we're continuously building up the value of the product. Whatever we started with, that white hot center that we concentrated on first, right? We now have to begin to build it out, fix, finish, and fill, get all these uh, augmentations into the product that begin to solve the problems uh, our customers are telling us about and, and strengthen the core uh, value we've delivered. So that's all generative work. But you also now need to begin to be adaptive because you got a revenue engine you're starting to build. And that's going to have to go through stages of maturing, okay? Every act of maturation is adaptive in nature. You're, you're beginning to say, okay, no, here's what our brand identity is. Here's the number of campaigns that need to be executed each month. Here's the expectations of a salesperson, right? Those are all adaptive acts that are beginning to focus on resiliency, scalability, and efficiency, right? Which is what adaptive means. So it begins to happen then, and, and that just continues to be even more so as you go further and further along. Okay, well, thanks so much for, for breaking that down. I feel like I really understand it better. As you're going, and I, and I kind of want to step through some of, these, uh, some of these stages and understand you know, how you can go from one stage to the next or, or what is happening. So as you're going from minimum viable product to minimum viable repeatability, you know, you've shown that there's some something valuable there there's uh, you're in that well to use your terms um you know you're, you're generating something and, and people are interested but you want to repeat on those successes what kind of uh, organizational systems are are growing or becoming active uh, as you as you reach that repeatability stage well well the first thing that's super important is not to kid yourself okay so the the most common problem with an early stage startup leader is to state that they have achieved 
minimum viable product when they haven't yet. Okay, it's a very common archetype. <laughs> it's a very common problem. And you're so eager. Every all the whole incentive system is set up for you to claim that you've made it through that point, right? VCs are more willing to talk with you and give you funding if they think you've really gotten through that stage, right? So and it's it's a perverse thing because you shouldn't leave that stage. There's an old phrase, it's better to crawl than walk than run than it is to run and crawl back. Right? And one of the worst things a leader can do is to try to sell their way out of a product problem. Right? Which I will admit is something I did in my startup to a certain degree early on. I we had certain types of we had we were very close. We we had a almost a bullseye hit with our initial product concept. But I used our early stage funding, which my investors wanted me to pour 100% into the revenue engine. I poured it 100% into the revenue engine. I mean, not 100%, but, but a big hunk of it went into the revenue engine. When really, I would have been wiser to put less into the revenue engine, slow down a little bit, and pour a lot more money into getting the product from good to great. And I didn't. And when I see these guys at... Zoom, Eric Yuan, and, and Brian Chesky, and Melanie Perkins from Canva. These are people that were abs- uh, Ashik Ahmed, who I coach to this day at Deputy, and Satish Natarajan, who I coach to this day at, at Dispatch Track. These are CEOs who are utterly focused on creating customer delight. It is not enough to be close. So that's the first thing. Don't kid yourself. Now, as you as you have truly exited the minimum viable product stage, what you need to do is to say, okay, I'm now in the repeatability stage. What does it mean to be through this stage and on detraction? Well, I actually encourage CEOs to define that. To, to define it, they can define it however they want, but it's usually in terms of the number of customers sold, the retention rate, right? The, the speed of sales, you know, this kind of thing. And we state those goals, and I call that the next value inflection point. And what that means is that if you can design a plan that allows you to get to that those outcomes, right, you're investable again. So one of the things that is meant by these stages, it's sort of to indicate uh, that every time you cross through a stage, You've created an inflection in the value of your enterprise that should enable you to get new funding, if that makes sense. So what we need to do at the beginning, once we've just exited, you know, we just looked at our churn numbers, our visionary customers are hanging in there. There's nobody been churning for, for a couple months. It feels like we've crossed over. We've made minimum viable product. What we do is we sit down and we say, what do we need to do to get to our next funding event, frankly, right? And that funding event is going to be proven, it's going to be justified by, by traction, by outcomes. And we define what those outcomes are, right? And we chase them and we mobilize ourselves to chase them. Now, to do that, you're now getting into the building, the initial building of your first operating system other than the product development system. And that operating system is the revenue engine. You're, that's the first system you go build. Now, obviously, you need accounting and you need HR at a very, very basic level. So there's a nascent version of those systems beginning to emerge, too. But the real focus at that point is on the revenue engine. And, and then as the repeatability, we're starting to say, hey, we got three deals this month. We got three deals last month and four the previous month and two the previous month. We're starting to be repeatable. OK, well, now let's work on traction start to go to four to five to six to eight to 10 to 20 a month, right? And so we start working on traction and that also is focused on the revenue engine. So you've, you've mentioned this revenue generating engine a few times. Uh, is this just having like a really kick-ass, pardon my French, sales team? Uh, what, what goes into that? Well, it's a beautiful question and one I love to answer. Here's the interesting thing about, about a revenue engine, right? And this is, this is systems thinking, is that a revenue engine is derivative of something, okay? It's derivative of the lifetime value profile of the average customer. So, so let me explain what I mean. 
Uh, over the course of my last eight years, I've, I've coached a lot of CEOs. I'm going to mention just two of them, okay? Two companies, okay? One was Healthline.com. Healthline.com is a digital media website. In fact, it just in the last couple of years now exceeds WebMD as the most successful consumer health website around, okay? It, it's, it's got more traffic. So Healthline... CEO at the time, uh, David Kopp, and I, I coached with him for five years or so. I, I was interested to learn fairly early on that the average value, now remember, this is a company with very significant revenues, right? Like uh, during the time trended to and probably now well past 100 million in revenue, okay? So very successful company, scaling nicely. And an incremental consumer, coming to healthline.com, a new one, delivered an incremental lifetime value, a new consumer visiting the site, of nine cents. Nine cents, okay? Now, there's a principle that says you can spend up to a third of lifetime value to acquire another customer. So at Healthline, they could spend up to three cents to acquire a new customer. Now, I coached another CEO, Ash Damley, who at the time was CEO of Lumiata. Lumiata was also in the healthcare space, but they were selling predictive medicine AI solutions to large insurance companies. The average value of the insurance company customers, the, a new customer acquired for that company was over a million dollars, right? Lifetime value, well over a million dollars, which meant that Ash could spend $350,000 to acquire a single customer. The revenue engine Ash had was very different than the revenue engine Dave Kopp had at Healthline. You get me? That's what I'm thinking right now, yeah. And so what we've learned from that is that the design of our revenue engine is derivative. It's derivative from the lifetime value profile of the average customer. So, so in the creation of a brand new revenue engine, the first thing we have to know is what's our lifetime value? Okay, what do we predict that it will be once we've stabilized? And, and then how, what does that mean for the type of customer acquisition? Do we need a fully product-led growth digital experience or do, are we going to have humans involved? And if so, what roles are they going to play and how's it going to work? And so... There's a continuum of possibilities and you figure out where your company needs to be and then you begin the process of beginning to put it in place. Why, why are they so different? Media is media, okay? So in a media environment, you, you need to aggregate. So a typical media company might have that if you want to buy an ad on, on a, a site like, like Healthline, you might pay, and I can't do the backwards math in my head here, but with nine cents, the average consumer, uh, lifetime value, that's going to be derived from some cost per thousand. So you need a thousand consumers to see your ad in order for you as a company uh, to see an ad on your platform uh, in order for, for your company to get 20 bucks. Okay. So what I'm saying is, Media companies need very large audiences in order to monetize at an impressive level. So the ads coming in are, are always hitting a bunch of eyeballs, but you need a lot of those eyeballs. So it, it, Healthline was, was privileged to be higher value per eyeball than most media companies, which are way lower than nine cents in terms of the value of, say, the New York Times' audience or, or other types of of audiences, but even so, it was still in in relationship to a B two B SaaS company or something. It was very low, nine cents. So obviously, what does that mean? The revenue engine is entirely digital. The entire process is digital, right? End to end, you come in as as a as, as a consumer. Uh, there's no, you're not going to see. Uh, there's no budget to to pay for growth marketing. So the only thing that is going to work for acquisition is SEO, which is free, right? So. You're going to have uh, search engine optimization becomes vital in that engine. And frankly, that's the whole ballgame right there is SEO, continuing to rank high and be in a large enough market where you can acquire a super large audience and, and dominate SEO, right? Versus Lumiata, where you have a sophisticated revenue engine that, that is very human in nature, and it's going to be 
an account-based marketing, ABM type of approach, which is account by account. How do we pursue this account? Who are the decision makers inside of it? How do we create a series of events, trade shows and interactions and custom meetings and all these various things with different people inside the enterprise to slowly but surely move them towards a deal, right? Very, very different. I guess my last follow-up here is, is one position more enviable than the other or are they just different? No, uh, they're just different. There, there can be very, you know, Canva is a great example of a company that is on the lower end of lifetime value, you know, in the continuum, but is, is building an incredible company, right? It, it, that, that has a global footprint and is going to be worth, already is worth billions and billions of dollars. So what matters is that leaders understand the boundaries of the, in this case, the revenue engine there inside, and they design the system to align with the boundaries, right? And live within them effectively. And that's the, so no, there's, there's no right, and, you know, gaming companies, there's all kinds of gaming companies that are worth a ton of money, but the lifetime value profiles are incredibly low. So they have a whole, an entirely digital experience. Well, thank you for walking me through that. I feel like I understand it better. We do have a couple questions here. I, I, let's just try and run through them. Still on the topic of, of systems and stages, uh, what systems kind of emerge when a startup reaches that, that minimum viable traction stage? We're kind of out of repeatability and now we're reaching traction. So what begins to happen as you add customers, right? You begin to add customers is that investors take notice and money starts to pour in. And so as, as the money begins to really pour into the enterprise, we now can really build out the product. We can fix, finish, and fill the product, right? We can build out accounting and maybe even other areas like corporate development eventually, not, not that early, but you, you begin to build out other component parts of, of the enterprise and you begin to add employees. Well, now we're not in a situation anywhere where Oleg, the CEO, can walk down the hall and see every single person who works in the company, right? We, we now have 75 employees. Some of them are remote. Many of them are remote these days, probably, right? And you're creating alignment, creating clarity as to who does what and how to elevate the maturity of the various systems that exist inside your enterprise becomes much more complex. You can't count on the informal connectivity anymore. Of, of a small group of people who've been together forever, right? It's different. You've got a lot of new employees, all those dynamics. So as things scale up, you begin to need to formalize certain systems, right? You need to begin to formalize the strategy process. And what I, I, I actually refer to this as, as one of the meta systems, which is this strategy planning and architecture system that enables you to create alignment to define where you're going, where's the next value inflection point, what do we got to get to, and then how does that render in terms of strategies and then plans and then who owns what, who's doing it, and how do we get the word out so that everybody's on the same page. And, and that's just one of these what I call meta systems that sit above the operating systems of the business. So that's what it's about. Okay, and then you might have touched on uh, what, what happens at the scaling stage. Do you have anything to add on that? It's just that things things heat up. Okay, so so what's now happening is is you have even more employees. You have even a faster pace of customer acquisition. Things begin to break. Okay, so at this stage, your technical platform. Okay, so it never makes sense to build a reactive microservices architected system before you've achieved your value breakthrough. Right? It's just it's too much extra work. So. So you need to first be, do it very light. And what you've effectively created until you get to your value breakthrough is, is a mini monolith, okay? It's just this little thing that's all spaghetti tied together that you've whipped together as best you can to get out there and see whether this is adding value for customers, okay? Once you begin hitting scaling, my uh, minimum viable scaling phase, that platform, which was not built for scale, is beginning to get tested, okay? The biggest mistake many CEOs make at this point is all they do is keep patching that mini monolith together and they allow it to become an ever bigger monolith. Okay. They keep pushing so hard to add the next new feature and build that little extension that the core thing that is meant to support 
the you know the you got the data application integration and infrastructure layer these these the, the technical stack begins to sort of shudder and quiver under the weight of 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 increased demand and latency problems begin to arise and so forth now what should happen at this stage if you're a an envelope leader if you if you're digitally literate what you're going to begin to do is devote some significant amount of time to begin to refactor your small technical monolith and begin to refactor it into microservices. And by breaking those that monolith into modular Legos and creating some isolation between the services and asynchronous communications between them, you, you do the necessary work to create a much more agile, resilient technical environment. Because now with those Lego building blocks, you can now parse out some of those services and say, okay, team A, you're responsible for these services. Team B, you're responsible for these services. So I can have one team working on just the flow from the first landing page uh, from a marketing lead through to the first transaction event, which might be to set up a demo. And there's one product team just dedicated on improving conversion across that flow. Another team may be focused on the analytics platform of the system for the existing customer, right? And a third team might be focused on something else. That's not possible if your technology is a monolith. It is only possible if your system has been architected in a microservices architecture. And that very concept of self-organized teams focused on a set of microservices that they are uniquely responsible for enables the team, the teams, to be, everything becomes different. You can be agile because if you break something, it's easy. You just fix it. You're inside your team. Whereas if you break it in the monolith, you could take the whole company down. Okay. So monolithic technologies force you to have monolithic organizations with waterfall methods versus agile. If you're in small microservices, you can have self-organized domain-based teams that are cross-functional, that you give a lot of autonomy to. And what you do is instead of saying to those teams, I need the following software output from your team this quarter, what you say is I need the following business outcomes. So build whatever software you want to build, but you got to achieve the business outcome. Now that is a cultural shift. Okay. After all that, uh, what happens once you reach the ex- an expansion stage? Yeah. So very exciting thing happens at this stage. So this is the first point on the journey of company building where you move beyond your initial core product. This is the point where there's some extension that you're going to add. It might be a geographic expansion into a new area, which requires very significant product customization to to serve that market properly. Or it's, it's an adjacent set of needs that your customers have that the core product didn't deal with. And and you're going to go and expand your product footprint by offering these capabilities. An example, in the case of Zoom, Zoom started with Zoom video. Okay. They then went to Zoom Rooms, then they went to Zoom Chat, then they went to Zoom Webinar, then they went to some other thing. I can't remember it off the top of my head. But my point is those were expansion moves. Now, the key in an expansion, because, of course, the company that's hit this point, the CEO's feeling pretty good, right? Like, man, I'm really I'm taking over the world here. Everything is moving in the right direction. How exciting. And what often can happen is hubris. CEOs think they know more than they know about the expansion opportunity. And they they rush it into a software output sort of orientation to say, okay, here's what I need you guys to build next. Here's exactly what it needs to be. Go off and build it, just software output. Just give me this software because I'm going to use it to take over this whole new adjacent opportunity. Well, that's the wrong way to do it. The right way to do it is to isolate a separate team that has enough separation from the core product that they can look at the new opportunity with fresh eyes and go back to the immerse and ideate stage 
and go back through Immerse and Ideate, minimum viable concept, initial product release, minimum viable product in the, in the expanded area, as opposed to presuming that somehow you have perfect knowledge already as exactly what is needed in this expansion area. That is a common fallacy. And so that's what you need to do in that phase is to act like a startup and, and with that new part of it, obviously the, the core part is still scaling, right? But with the new thing, you got to isolate a team, hermetically seal them away from the core group, allow them to think outside in, live inside their customer's world, bring the assumptions they have into that customer's world and challenge those assumptions. See if they're right. Find out where they're wrong. Get it right. Iterate, iterate, iterate. Test, iterate, optimize. And then only after you've got your breakthrough and you've got to the point where now your minimum viable product, we've proven it works. We have happy customers that are buying this new thing. Well, now we can talk about further integration into the core, if that makes sense. It does. And, and thank you for walking through all these stages. There's a few more in your book, IPO path, getting to IPO and becoming a hot public company, but I'm kind of running up against the clock here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encourage listeners to uh, read more uh, to learn more on that. I want to close with... Uh, with people. People always make the difference between good and great at every stage. So how do you make sure as a CEO and as a in-the-loop leader that you have sufficient density of, of these kinds of people on board? Wow, that's a great question. So, you know, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I'll simply say that there's two different types of roles, right? High variation roles and low variation roles. What do I mean by that? So a, a, a low variation role is like accounts payable accounts receivable, other types of roles in which the nature of the work pretty much stays the same day by day by day by day. Okay? Low variation roles, the difference between an average worker and the very best worker you could find can never be much more than 3x because the, there's just not enough opportunity to, to improve upon a standardized process. There's a little bit. You can reinvent and, and redesign some things. But, but the, the, great, the great performer is only going to be about 3x the average. On the other hand, in a high variation role, and let's ex give examples, everybody certainly in senior leadership is in a very high variation role, the CEO the most of all, senior team directors, I would even go down to managers and to a certain degree, even supervisors who are constantly encountering new types of problems that come out of them every single day. That's high variation. Okay. Marketing, anybody in a marketing campaign role, high variation, you know, the market's in continuous motion. You're continuously evolving the campaigns that are going to work and you have to have to constantly be sensing how the moods are changing, the trends are evolving, and how to incorporate those in a campaign. Salespeople, high variation work, okay? Corporate lawyers, you know, there's all kinds of roles that are high variation work, okay? In a company, in the system called your company, you want to look and say of all the roles, which ones are lower variation and which ones are higher variation? And as a company scales, Reed Hastings of Netflix once said this, the only antidote to the rising complexity of scale is to increase the density of 10Xers. So in those high variation roles where the, the leverage is 10X or even greater, software engineers, great example, software engineers, right? Those algorithmists that are able to have incredibly breakthrough concepts of how to solve a very difficult technical problem. Those are at least 10Xers, right? but you got to increase the density of your 10Xers. And that is the antidote to scaling because these people have the capacity to think systemically. They look at all the moving parts. They sense all the things. They look three, four, five steps ahead and they accommodate that in the solutions they devise. All right, Tom, we're going to end it there. That was a great thought and a great answer. Before we get out of here, what's the best way for our listeners to reach you and, and where can they find your writing? All of my books are posted on medium.com slash CEO quest and uh, happy to welcome new readers. That, that'd that be awesome. You can also buy uh, two of my books, Scaling the Revenue Engine and Funding and Exits on Amazon if, if you would like to do that. Eventually, you'll be able to all, buy all three of them. <laughs> As to how you can reach me, uh, you can email me at 
T-M-O-H-R at CEOQuest, if, uh, CEOQuest.com. If anybody would like to connect, uh, you can do it that way. All right. Thank you so much. We're going to end it there. If you liked our show, please give us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts and send us your feedback to info at angelnears.com. Tom, thank you for joining the show today. You're clearly an expert on all things uh, startup and uh, startup scaling and, and enterprise and people. I mean, there was a lot in there. So thanks for joining and sharing your insights with our listeners. Thank you, Oleg. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. 